We're in a uh, thematic Advent series this year. I was just noticing, I don't know why those words are on top of each other, but um, besides a brief message this coming Friday at our uh, communion service, this is kind of a final message for this Advent year. I still managed to squeeze in four messages. Um, but I do invite you to come back next week. We're going to have a presentation from our kids as well as a special song. So I felt led to entitle this entire series as the need for Christmas. And as I think about how the, the Lord, I feel, led me to this last message, I, I debated if, if it fell under any sort of need for Christmas. <laughs> but by way of reminder, um, just to what we talked about the first week was looking for consolation and how Simeon, the prophet, was looking for the consolation of Israel. And he received the unexpected answer in the baby Jesus that this was going to be the new son of David, the warrior, this poor family and his baby. He nevertheless accepted it wholeheartedly. We then talked about the angels proclaiming to the shepherds and how Christ the King was, quote, to you. And we talked about the personableness and the familiarity and that the Lord would make Himself so vulnerable in the flesh and be given to us. Last week, by Sunday morning, I had endured a few drafts of a few different texts, the latest of which was last Saturday night. (laughs) And it yielded up for us Hebrews 4 where we talked about belief and rest. Uh, The author of Hebrews says the promise of His rest still stands. It's still open. And the message of Christmas should be one of rest, that if we believe in Him and all that He offers, that rest still stands. And I guess if I had to tie this week's message into the theme concerning the need for Christmas, it's that the need to know that it really happened and that who Christ is is a better offering than all the kings of this world. Christ is the King we need. And for our focus this week, I want us to turn to two passages. I'll be reading them as it appears they happened chronologically in history. So it's not going to be um, first Matthew, then Luke. It's going to be Luke, then Matthew. But I do want us to consider Luke 2, 1 through 3, and Matthew 2, 1 in the beginning of 2. So if you're able to stand, they will be up here on the wall. I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of reading and hearing the word of the Lord, if you're able to. We read, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the whole empire. This was the first census to take place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Then on over to Matthew chapter 2 we read, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Let's pray. Father, for whatever reason... The authors you inspired to write these words mention your coming in the time of, your coming in the reign of at least three rulers we heard about here. We ask, Father, why, why is this important if we want to profess and believe that every 
word you write down? Is it more than just pinpointing historically where he came? Um, I believe it is. So we pray, Lord, that as you speak to us, that your spirit would be speaking and not myself, that you would move me out of the way. You would say what you desire. Father, we desperately pray that you would have your way in our hearts, that you would break down defenses, that you would cross over our objections, and whatever hindrances we might have, we pray for the grace that it is to have a soft heart towards your word and not a hard one. So please have your way, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I've been a little bit, uh, I guess, different as I approach this series. Every week I had no idea what I would be writing. I just told myself what the theme was that I felt the Lord lead me to, and I would look at the scriptures, the, the Advent, familiar Advent stories, and see if anything would jump out at me. And So I found myself in Lewiston on Monday in Starbucks, because I'm a heathen, and uh, I sat down and I just began reading, and as I came to Matthew 2, uh, I saw during the time of King Herod, as Matthew frames it. And so I began thinking, okay, our author is trying to give his readers historical access into this story. The time of King Herod. Readers could look at that time as a setting, but then I knew my Advent scriptures very well, likely having read or heard Luke 2 every year since I was a kid, if not multiple times a year. And I knew Luke 2 began by naming off some other names, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius. And since I went to Bible college, my clever preacher's mind clicked, especially thinking of those three kings that we sing of, and how though it's been historically proven that there likely weren't really kings. Yes, they had the, the audience of King Herod, but they were probably not kings themselves. But my clever preacher brain said, oh, I know of three other kings, Herod, Quirinius, and Augustus. And so I asked myself as I was thinking about this, why do the scriptures give us three people, three leaders, wherein to nail down the time of the incarnation of Christ? Well, for historical veracity, no doubt, as I just said, the authors want us to know that they knew what was going on, who was the who of the time when Christ entered the world. But if there's anything I bank on as a preacher and teacher, that is the scriptures even the, the, the same scriptures, perhaps even the same words, seem to have an endless supply of truth and holiness to be plumbed out of them. So then the Lord sent me to look at these three other kings and ask, who are they? What do their kingships really say about Christ? In Bible college, in the preaching and, and teaching class, the curriculum that I had to go through had this very technical, very highfalutin, sophisticated term that happens whenever you do sermon prep, that there comes a time, are you ready for this big word? It's called the aha moment. (laughs) As an aha, here's what the Lord's saying. Here's what he's connecting this text to the reasons for my preaching. Here's where it hit me. Here's where it hit me. It's, It's the emotional impact. True story, the aha moment. As I began to stand these other kings, I I pretty quickly began to have many aha moments. 
As for the reasons why Luke and Matthew may have dropped the names of these rulers in the contemporary time of Christ, sometimes knowing the ruler of a land does more than just think about, have us think about just days on the calendar. In other words, if I told you, oh, that happened in the Nixon administration, you're not just thinking about one man, but maybe you're thinking about the 70s. Maybe you're thinking about the big shadows of of government corruption, which never happens now, thank God, and Watergate and and turmoil and distrust from the White House might fill your mind. If I say Clinton, you might say Lewinsky scandal. If I say Bush Jr., you might say 9-11 and war in Iraq. So we, we make associations. If you're thinking abroad like England, notice we don't say the reign of so-and-so, but actually we've taken to saying the Victorian era, the Elizabethan era, because we think about the mood and the morals and the culture and the events of these eras of reign. When it comes to Emperor Augustus, King Herod, and Quirinius, some of their accomplishments or what they were known for might point us to perhaps what Paul meant when he wrote, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, having been born of a woman, being born under the law. And there's another era term right there, under the law. But fullness of time, as if time was was pregnant. But then the doctor, God, had called a perfect delivery date. A delivery date among all the other things that Scripture tells us about his coming. A delivery date that was also in the reigns of Emperor Augustus, King Herod, and Quirinius. Handling the text chronologically as they describe events, Luke 2 again begins, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the whole empire. And Luke 2 begins referencing a ruler who rules from a palace, but it hones in on a ruler being born and laid in a manger. Other translations were right here in Luke 2, 1, bringing out a more literal primary meaning that a census should be taken of the whole world. <clears throat> Land or, uh, or world. See, for a Roman citizen, anything outside of the empire wasn't the world as far as they were concerned. It was really of no consequence. And so Caesar prided himself assuming his kingly charge of the whole world as he knew it, where Christ was born king. As the Magi will say, and his kingdom is twofold. Christ himself would say to another ruler, my kingdom is not of this world. But he also told the Jewish Sanhedrin, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So while Caesar rules what he believes to be the world, Jesus rules the world. Period. As for in the empire, Augustus Caesar, he was hailed as bringing peace. He was believed to be bringing in the Pax Romana. And if you actually went to a good education, maybe you know a bit bit about the Pax Romana or which means Roman peace. Meanwhile, we know what the angels announced to the shepherds, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill among men. 
Caesar's was an enforced peace, whereas Christ brings a peace with God. And furthermore, these angels, they use this term for, Behold, I bring you good news, which we talked about last week. What is another word for good news? Gospel. Did you know that gospel was a commonly used term in that day? Okay. The Greek form of it, at least, and it would announce military victories, political events, or the birth of an emperor. Gospel. And so while Herod's, heralds and human messengers would announce gospel to the elites, the powerful, you know, they would have Facebook status updates, maybe not. But for the citizens of their day, for Christ, we have better heralds and lower recipients. Angels, heavenly angels, announce the birth of a poor baby in a manger to poor lowly shepherds. And Christ is hailed by the angels. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Savior and Lord. These are two terms that actually would describe at the time the political thoughts and views of who Caesar Augustus is. Christ and, or uh, excuse me, Savior and Lord. Augustus's name is uh, Gaius Octavius. And he's actually the first or the second, depending on how you view it, emperor of Rome. He follows the famed Julius Caesar. And though three began ruling after Caesar, eventually Octavius remains. It's the classic stupid human logic of let's war to end all wars. The truth is, is that Rome had been undergoing civil war after civil war. You think our politics are bad. (laughs) And while Julius Caesar brought some stability, his life ended in assassination, as you know. And after Caesar, three rose up to rule Rome. And though Rome was big, apparently it wasn't big enough for three rulers. So more civil war ensued, and then Augustus Caesar won out. He was hailed as the savior of Rome and lord over it. The Roman Empire was coming into shape, and the term Caesar would come to be synonymous with emperor. So after assassinations and wars and survival of the fittest, Caesar Augustus is hailed as the savior of the empire, ushering in peace. Well, Christ is born and hailed by angels as Lord, Savior, and Prince of Peace. Luke 2.2 mentions the next ruler that I'm, I'm using more as a launch pad. So look at this idea of the census. It says this was the first census to take place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. I'll try not to bore you. I think I got this down to three paragraphs, but you need to understand it a little bit. There is this debate as when this exact census is happening. Because the only documented census, and by documented I mean the Jewish historian Josephus, happens in 6 A.D. by Quirinius, which is a little bit too late um, to be in line with the birth of Jesus. In fact, we have the the Pharisee Gamaliel likely making reference to that census in Acts 5.37. First of all, let's just say, even by secular standards, Luke is a first-rate historian. He's not sloppy with his work and his detail and, and thoroughness is on par and regarded with with high regard with other historians of the era. So I find it highly unlikely that Luke made a glaring date mistake. I also feel like I should mention, I believe in the accuracy and fallibility of Scripture, and I'm not trying to 
raise suspicions. I'm just trying to prove the Scripture's trustworthiness. BSB and a few other translations would have a footnote for us right after that while. And that is to show that the Greek word being used makes room for the meaning of before. As in this was the census before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Which makes sense. As in Luke might be saying, you know that big census where Quirinius was governing Syria? Well, I'm talking about the census before that. The Greek makes room for that. The word is tricky. Suffice it to say, the heavy hand of Rome was ordering a census. And it wouldn't be the first or the last time while Rome or any world power was exercising authority like that. You realize they they didn't send census takers out to every house. And uh, no, they forced their own subjects to, to come together at ancestral homes. And while they were exercising power that the hand of men is actually being moved by the hand of God. Because it's this reason alone that ensures Jesus fulfills prophecy from 400 years prior and is born in Bethlehem as opposed to Nazareth, where his earthly uh, father and his mother would come from. They must go to Bethlehem, the city of David, another prestigious ruler, to be counted at the census. You know, the Bible uses this language of a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken. A decree by the ruler. This is the time I want to take the census, so shall it be done. I don't know why it sounds that way. This ruling, this decreeing reminds me of God's decree. See, as we've already had heard, there was a fullness of time. There was a certain time a filling up of time, a time that was pregnant and came to completion with Christ. It was God's decree to send Christ at that moment. Or Paul uses this language in Ephesians. He says, And he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. In him we were also chosen as God's own, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything by the counsel of His will. See, it sounds like Christ has His own census. He counts people in Him. It's interesting to me that Jerusalem was the place worshippers went, right? The temple. But the Gospel opens up to find two unsuspecting righteous persons. We find, we're told that Joseph was, quote, a righteous man, Matthew 119. Mary exemplifies obedience, calling herself the Lord's servant, Luke 138. And these folks are not heading to Jerusalem, but rather they're heading to the hometown of King David. Now I know it's by order, it's by decree, it's for reasons of a census. That's not lost in me, but I do find it an interesting foreshadow of how Jesus will declare that the temple in Jerusalem are morally bankrupt. And that this son of David of Bethlehem will usurp the role as temple. The people of God reside in Christ, in him. To use the language of Ephesians. It's fitting to mention the temple because we, now we turn to the last of the other three kings. And Matthew is telling his account of the nativity, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod. 
So the way that Rome had set things up, there was the emperor, the Augustus, Caesar. Then just as there is a president of our country and at least 50 governors of smaller states, so Rome oversaw smaller areas with governors, one of who would be Quirinius. But also then, as Rome took over people, because they're so nice, they found it practical and beneficial to have people groups ruled by more local leaders, a client king. A bone to throw, to throw at their conquered peoples. But no doubt such rulers would be in the back pocket of Rome. And this is King Herod. He is a king of the Jews. I've mentioned and spoken on him a, a bit already in our series together. He was a paranoid murderer, anxious to keep his kingdom. Not only would he massacre the innocent children of Bethlehem, but he also murdered family members. He was wary of losing his, his throne. But what I haven't mentioned about him was that he was not only a restorer of the temple, we'll talk about that, but he was a master builder, period. He wanted to be known as a great builder. It's really what he went to school for. He built many theaters. He built whole cities. In the book of Acts, you know about Cornelius, the Roman centurion. He he is at a place called Caesarea Martima. Herod, Herod built that city. Herod also built many palaces and fortresses, his palace at Jericho, places called Maturus, Masada, Sebasti. Don't look up the uh, way you pronounce those words. Um, But there was another place he built. You know that statement of Jesus where he says, Truly I, I tell you that if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and has no doubt in his heart, but believes that it will happen, it will be done for him. Or, you know how Paul hypothesizes in 1 Corinthians 13 that if I have absolute faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. They could have been thinking of Herodium. It's not an element, (laughs) Herodium. It's a fortress, it's a town, it's a mound literally built by Herod. Now, I've heard two stories about how this was built. One I heard rather providentially, I might add. I I had planned this message out, but what I didn't anticipate was listening to a sermon this week from another preacher focusing on the contrasts of Herod and Jesus. In any ways, all I found after I researched it, after what I heard, that this was a maybe. Maybe there's this connection. That is, this preacher said that Herod's mother was coming to visit him, and on the road she fell ill, so ill that she might die. Then Herod himself fell into a deep depression, and he was threatening suicide. When she finally recovered, Herod was so relieved that he ordered the building of this fortress in honor of her living. That's one theory. The more plausible theory that I find, at least from my own research, is that he was once fleeing a warring army. I I didn't write down the name of the army because I didn't think he would care. (laughs) On his way, he came to the spot that would be called Herodium, and there he clashed with Jewish opponents. Like any politician, Herod had his friends and foes among his own people. Well, he is victorious in that scuffle. And to commemorate his victory, he, according to Josephus, a Jewish historian around in the later first century, built a town on that spot in commemoration of his victory, and enhanced it with wonderful palaces, and he called it Herodium after himself. Now, the second theory 
seems more plausible in that Herod strikes me as the kind of guy who would rather glorify himself in the things he builds when he's not glorifying pagan gods or goddesses or the emperors above him to keep them in his good graces. Commemorating an ailing but now better mother seems almost too selfless for the guy, I don't know, when he's been known to murder other family members when he's worried about them taking their throne. Anyways, do you know how he built it? It was the spot, right? He wanted that spot where he had had the victory. But that spot wasn't a high enough hill for him. So he literally moved a mountain. When you have endless money and slave labor like this guy had, you can do that. One article said, Herod used slaves to artificially raise the hill of his palace to become the highest peak in the area. This process took years Raising the mountain one bucket of dirt at a time, the project was done about 22 to 15 B.C., so it's within the decade or so before Jesus comes. You know where it was built? A little over three miles southeast of Bethlehem. You can see it from Bethlehem. And in the shadow of this man-made mountain, the real earth mover was born in Bethlehem. And he'd grow up in this Israel affected by Herod the Great. Even after Herod, who would seek out the baby Jesus and and murder innocent children in the process, after he died so Joseph and Mary could move back, his legacy would remain. We hear this about his temple in Jerusalem. Luke records it this way in Luke 21. It says, uh, as some of the disciples were remarking how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and consecrated gifts, Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Uh, all will be, everyone will be thrown down. This is the, the temple that Herod built. Herod literally doubled the size of the temple from 17 acres to 36 acres. It was beautiful Uh, And as stated here in Scripture, and some even called it the eighth wonder of the world. And as I just relayed, many Jews weren't happy with him, uh, that battle wherein he made Herodium. His temple construction was an attempt to not only outdo Solomon, but also to leave his mark in the world and curry favor with the Jews. But it didn't curry favor with Jesus. In fact, The whole Jewish religion at the time, we know, wasn't pleasing to Jesus. In all of the gospel accounts, we have this episode of Jesus walking into the temple. We read as the evangelist uh, John writes it, In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and money changers seated at their tables. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables To those selling doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. On account of this, the Jews demanded, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. This temple took 46 years to build, the Jews replied, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Herod wanted to be remembered. 
to build a temple that would last forever, compete with the great wonders of the world, curry favor with his people as he was a king of the Jews. But Jesus says, I am the temple for my people. Peter knows this truth. He talks about us being living stones built up into a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2.5. Paul knows this truth and he writes in Ephesians 2. He says, therefore, you, referring to non-Jews who were historically not allowed into the physical temple like Herod built, but Paul says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together into a dwelling place for God in his Holy Spirit. Herod dumped his life, his money, his hopes in winning favor for his people into his temple. But Christ spilled out his life and brought his people to himself, the true temple. Caesar Augustus, a king who would either fancy himself, or at least he would be remembered by his own people later as a god, already at this time called the Savior and Lord, ushering in a era an era of peace. Quirinius, a census wherein the powers of Rome could, could count its own people in order to tax them more, and then Herod, the great, who would pride himself on his own construction jobs, pouring his life into his great temple. And all of these kings at the time of Jesus, all of their pursuits and and what they'd be remembered for is outdone by a poor baby in a manger. Jesus is fully manned and is fully God. He is the king of the world and he is the prince of peace. He is the savior of all mankind to be submitted to his Lord. Jesus would count his own people and those in him would not be taxed, but rather forgiven of their debts. And Jesus came to build his own temple that would far outdo or outlive anything Herod could ever do. And verse 2 of Matthew 2 tells us that some already recognized this in some way, shape, or form at his birth. Matthew 2.1 says, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the one who has been born? king of the Jews. Again, we know that these aren't likely real kings as we think of it, but they have the audience of King Herod. One of my study notes says that their title, the Magi, appear in the Septuagint, which is actually a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but by the time of Jesus and his and other New Testament authors, they might have been reading the Septuagint. And in the book of of Daniel, which takes place in Babylon and Persia, this title of Magi shows up in passages that talk about sorcerers, astrologers, and other counselors of the king. So, the fact that these men are coming this far to give lavish gifts to King Jesus, I think they're pretty much pagan. (laughs) But it tells us of the devotion that they had. And perhaps it challenges some of our own devotion today, right? We call ourselves thorough Christians, devoid of the pagan darkness that these wise men may have had. But they traveled, no doubt, hundreds of miles and spent lavish gifts on a baby, and we kind of complained about coming to church today. 
I know I did. I mean, it's a long walk from over there. But the light of Jesus is drawing these pagan men out of their darkness. Like one of my study notes pointed out, even in Christ's infancy, he is doing what he said his ministry does, and that is when a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are secure. So the strong man is the devil. He's the prince of the power of the air. He thinks he's in control. But when someone stronger, that's Jesus, attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted, and then he divides his plunder. Christ the King, the real Lord and Savior, has already overpowered the Prince of Darkness and is plundering his house. He's bringing light to the darkness. He's bringing pagans to the true temple found in Bethlehem in these moments because the temple, Christ, is in Bethlehem. So what does this mean for us as we consider not just a need, but the need for Christmas? In the fullness of time, a time when rulers and governors were over Israel, Christ shows up and shows that He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He fulfills what they're known for better than they fulfill it. And friends, Christ still is. He still is. You know, I know, I know we look to our own rulers in our own time. Some we fear, some we cheer. But the need for Christmas tells us this, that overall, whether in the cradle or the cross or the grave or the throne of heaven, Christ reigns. He's sovereign. He's Lord over all. He's still the Prince of Peace. He still counts His people in Him. So are you in Him? And He's still the temple where we all come to to worship, to celebrate and to live in, in spirit, in truth. That's Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for yielding yourself to us. You grew up, you never had a home. Whenever you had to pay the taxes, you had to take it out of a fish mouth. You didn't have a boat to preach from. Whenever you sat down with the Lord's Supper, you needed to borrow a donkey. You needed to borrow an upper room. Yet in all your humility, all your poorness, in your way of peace, not ever lifting a finger of violence, except for on your own people when they're doing stupid things, you far outdo the kings and queens and powers and sovereigns and rulers who would think that they're some sort of authority on the earth. Father, you are sovereign. You came in a time of three rulers that were mentioned and all the things that they were either known for or wanted to be known for, you outdid from the manger. Thank you, Prince of Peace. Thank you for being our temple. Thank you for counting us as your people in Christ. And so, Father, I just pray that all of us would take stock of where we are at in our walk with you. If we need to be found in you, would you help us to repent today and come back to you? Father, I just pray that as we go about our time, as we go home or go wherever we're going, and then the next coming weeks, 
perhaps doing Christmas with family, whatever we're doing, we pray that as we think about the need for Christmas, we think about the need for you to be in our world. Help us to proclaim you as we go about our days, to give people the hope that you bring, to bring people out of darkness and into light. We ask and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.